This morning's Bible reading is taken from Genesis 11, verses 1 to 32. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and break them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arpasad. And after he became the father of Arpasad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpasad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arpasad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. 
Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. I'm sure no one envies Mike for having that passage to read. Uh, But uh, thank you, Mike, for doing that so well for us. Genesis chapter 11. We will be actually working through Genesis 9, 18 to chapter 12, verse 3, if you want to sort of overlook uh, that passage in your Bible. Uh, I just wanted to know, during your time here, has anyone scaled one of the mountains? Walked across, done a walk. Oh, that's wonderful to see. Because we did a cheat. Our friends Simon and Keshi gave us a, a, a car tour around the mountains. But what, when you think about the hills around Keswick, I thought it sort of reminds us of Genesis 1 to 11. Because on the one hand, you can be here and really enjoy the hills and the mountains. But if you were to scale those mountains, then you would see the full splendor of the surroundings of Keswick. And we got a chance to see all the great, fantastic beauty of the countryside around the waterfalls and the, uh, and the rivers and the lake. And it was just beautiful. And I think it's such a blessing to be able to spend these days here, especially as the sun came out from yesterday. We've really seen God's beauty here. Thank you also for your, uh, for your participation in the Bible readings and for your encouraging words through the week, but particularly also for your engagement with the scriptures and your love for God's word. I believe God is doing something wonderful here at Keswick every year, reminding us that we are not alone, that God has on his side many who have not bowed their knees to Baal, and I'm sure you go back encouraged. I also want to say thank you to James and Bridget for your warm hospitality and welcome, and to the Keswick leadership for giving us the opportunity to be here with you. Uh, and as I said, we are looking at Genesis 9:18 to Genesis 12 and verse 3. Uh, and today our theme is rediscovering purpose in a rebellious world. Rediscovering purpose in a rebellious world. Now, if someone asked you, said to you, I have good news and I have bad news, what do you usually prefer to hear first? The bad news. Okay. Uh, some people might be the kind who'll say, uh, just give me the good news, you know. Uh, so a man got a call from his doctor, and, the, and he said, Bob, I have good news and I have bad news. And the man said, doctor, what's the good news? He said, the latest tests show that you have 24 hours to live. He said, oh gosh, doctor, what's the bad news? He said, I've I've been trying to contact you since yesterday and couldn't get through. As we come to the final section of Genesis 1 to 11, it is as if the author is saying, I have good news and I have bad news. On the one side, we see the purposes of God being accomplished and humanity flourishing and filling the earth with diverse people groups. On the other hand, we see how the sinful violations by both individuals and whole societies 
are undermining the good purposes of God. So it's as if the author is trying to say, I have good news and I have bad news. He's a very realistic writer. And so if you will join with me in reading what I would suggest is a summary of the final section of Genesis 9 to uh, 1 to 11. Shall we read together? Because God's purpose was persistently resisted by human rebellion, he determined to call out one chosen people through whom would arise the Messiah and founder of a new humanity of diverse peoples to populate a new creation and provide for God a home. And as, I, as we come to the end of Genesis 1 to 11, yes, it has its note of pessimism, of sadness, of tragedy, and yet there is the good news that God is not done with humanity. He's going to set in motion a purpose, uh, his purpose, through an individual who will then lead to the coming of the Messiah. So revisiting God's purpose for humanity in creation From the very first chapter of Genesis, we keep coming back to this sense of the purposefulness of God. Unlike those Mesopotamian stories that we have now got a little more acquainted with, they suggest that uh, the creation of the world and the creation of humans were secondary decisions by their gods. Genesis 1 and 2 actually assert that the creation of the world was God's highly intentional act. And that the creation of humans was the climax of this amazing work of God. In fact, in the biblical worldview, humans are made, as you remember, for the glorious reason of becoming God's personal representatives on the earth. And I hope that as you go back from Keswick, you travel through, whether you're going north to Scotland or going south to London, as you travel through, that you would look at everything you see and say, God You have called me to represent you in this landscape, among these people, among these creatures. And have that sense of God's calling on your life as a created person, you and I. So let's revisit our summaries of Genesis 1 and 2. When we read the first section, Genesis 1, taking the whole picture into account, I suggested a a little summary. And will you help me by reading it with me? The biblical story of creation is about the sovereign God who orders the world with purposeful design and creates humans to flourish so that they may govern the world as God's representatives, imitating his character. And will you do the same for the second chapter and its summary? Humans are a community intimately and intricately created by God to serve him by taking responsibility to govern the world on his behalf beginning in God's special garden and expanding their influence as they grow into diverse and unified peoples. You will notice that theme coming up again and again. Diverse and unified peoples. God having a plan that we would grow into a united community of diverse peoples. But as we read read beyond Genesis 3, we see how the good purposes of God are undermined by the sinful, rebellious actions of people. In fact, no sooner does God do something wonderful, sinful behavior raises its ugly head. The good news and the bad news. But we begin now with one of the sections of good news. But if you look at the next slide, you will see that in Genesis 9:18 through Genesis 11, uh, sorry, 12:3, there is the bad news in the first section 
verse 18 to 28 of chapter 9. Then you have the good news, as I suggest, in chapter 10, and we are going to look at that in a moment. And then again, the bad news in chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, the famous story of the Tower of Babel. But then again, good news as the story of Shem's genealogy unfolds and climaxes with the coming of Abraham and God's call to him to go into the land of Canaan. So if we begin with that section, the second section of good news, and if you have your Bible open to chapter 10 at this point, uh, Genesis 10 verse 1 to 32. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but most of us find uh, genealogical passages in the Bible quite tedious. Do you find it difficult with genealogy? You know, I mean, it's the father of so-and-so and and the father of so-and-so. And most of the names are so difficult to pronounce. I know you and I, we tend to glaze over those very quickly. And that's why Chronicles is one of those where we do the fly-by-night, you know. We stop at, at the narrative sections and then we quickly run through. But I want to suggest that uh, to ancient Hebrew people and even to Jewish people today, genealogy was super important and even exciting because it helped them to clarify their identity and understand their place in the world. Now, in some cultures, this continues, right? You find, and all cultures, whenever you meet someone new, you ask who they are and then you ask where they are from. And the moment you know they're from this particular village in Scotland, then you remember that you have a friend who lives in that part of the world and you then try to find out if there's any connections. Now in Sri Lanka, being a small country, we do this all the time. Uh, And so people just love to be able to trace your connections by your name and so on. And so people of ancient times desperately uh, valued uh, genealogy because it helped them to get a sense of identity and place in the world. Genesis 10, 1 to 32, appears to be genealogical, but genealogy is not its purpose. This chapter is trying to let us know what happened to the human story that had been quite violently suspended by the flood of judgment. It is, uh, sorry, the flood judgment. It is called the table of nations and is on the good side of of the equation of good news and bad news. Now, why is it on the good side? Because it shows us that following the flood, the sons of Noah became the progenitors of a flourishing human race. So if you look at chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And then after that, when we look at chapter 10, we are told about the sons of Noah, Noah and his sons, and how this has become fulfilled in chapter 10, verse 1 to 32. And I want to share a few very important things that we notice from this table of nations. Three very important truths. First, is that as you read through these 32 verses, you become aware that one of the points the author is making is that the nations have a shared ancestry. Because all these nations get mentioned, like Canaan and Egypt and Mesopotamia, All these great kingdoms and empires and people groups are mentioned in this 32 verses. The Israelite slaves have come out of Egypt and they have suddenly discovered there's a huge world out there made of empires and nations, urban city dwellers and nomadic people groups. Massive people movements have happened through migrations and transnational conflicts. Now what were they to make of such a world? Where did we, as Israelites, they would have been asking, where do we fit in? 
in this complex geographical and historical context. Everyone was so settled and so distinctive that it was common for people to argue for a unique origin for themselves. You know, different cultures had stories or sort of national myths about their origins. And they claimed that their territorial god first founded them and only thereafter founded other nations. And these stories always elevated one's own people group or one's own nation above others. But the biblical story is radically different. You know, this thing of superiority as nations or people groups has been with us throughout, has it not? Uh, We may do it through war, asserting our superiority through war, just as is happening in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. But we also do it through sport. Winning the Ashes can sometimes be a very helpful way to assert uh, our dominance as a nation. And when we don't win it, then we feel a little like we are waiting for the next Ashes. And Sri Lanka, we are always hoping that we will win another Cricket World Cup but we don't get there. But we would love to do it and then feel really good about being Sri Lankans in the world of nations. We may use war, we may use trade, we may use sports. Uh, But even within nations, we may have false narratives, false national myths that tell us that one particular race is somehow superior than the other. Whether it's Sri Lanka or the United Kingdom or any part of the world, you will find within the nation this natural seemingly natural human impulse to assert our importance above others. But the Bible is claiming shared ancestry for all the people of the earth, without exception. So the highly advanced Mesopotamians with their great civilizations and constructions or the Egyptians with their fantastic civilization, they share their ancestry with seafaring European nations on the border of the Mediterranean Sea as well as with the nomadic tribes of the Arabian desert. No nation, however powerful, could claim superiority over another, nor was any nation completely independent of the other. They were all interconnected. They were all descendants of the sons of Noah. Many years later, during the time of Amos, the kingdom of Israel had become strong and prosperous under a king called Jeroboam II. It had become a mini empire in its own right. And this had led them to the false belief that they were somehow more superior to the other nations. And it is then that God sends Amos to preach to them and disabuse them of this error. If you remember a famous verse in Amos chapter 9 and verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Did I not bring Israel up out of Egypt? The Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir. Later on in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, Paul writes in Acts 17 and verse 26, from one man he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So we are all sharing uh, uh, the same ancestry. But secondly, in these In these verses in chapter 10, flourishing humanity is marked by diversity. Flourishing humanity is marked by diversity. Three times in the chapter, if you like to run your eye to it, in verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31, you will see the author emphasizing something in common. As he speaks about 
Shem, the Japhetites, the Hamites, and the Shem, uh, Shemites, he emphasizes one thing, like a chorus at the end of each section. And what is he trying to say? If you look at verse 5, it says, From these the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans, with their nations, each with its own language. Again, in verse 20, he says, These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. The author is trying to emphasize that each of the sons of Noah gave rise to a scintillating variety or diversity of people groups, occupying different territories, speaking many languages, forming different family groups, and constituting different nations. I'm sure you're thinking many languages before chapter 11, and that seems to be very deliberate. The author is careful to show us that many languages is not a curse. Many languages was God's part of God's design for humanity, that it would be part of our rich diversity, territories, nations, clans, languages, and so on. It's a result of God's blessing of verse 1. He says, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth as diverse people groups. And this is how God has always envisioned humanity. And so as we look around, even in this tent, but even more so as we go out and encounter a world of diverse peoples, God wants us to celebrate diversity. Amen? Give me a good loud amen. God wants us. Amen. You know, he created a world, a universe of millions of galaxies in which the Milky Way galaxy alone has a hundred billion stars. And among all the planets and celestial bodies in the universe, only Earth, thus far to our knowledge, is able to sustain life. Even today, this tiny planet has 8.7 million species of animals and 391,000 different plants have been identified. It is not only full of life, it is teeming with diverse life forms. God treasures, God celebrates this diversity and wants it to be the eternal mark of humanity. Now, how do we know that God wants this kind of diversity to be the eternal mark of humanity? We know it from the book of Revelation when we are told about how the nations that have been saved will be gathered before the Lamb. And I think you and I must read this aloud together. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? That at the very end of history, when everything has been renewed, we will still be speaking Welsh and English and Sinhala and Tamil and Mandarin. None of the languages would have disappeared. And even at Pentecost, you remember... The power of the Holy Spirit was used not to enable all the multitudes to understand the Hebrew language, but to enable all the apostles to speak the oracles of God in the individual languages of at least 16 different regions of the Roman Empire. 
The third thing that we learn from chapter 10 is that Noah's descendants reach the full number. A third way in Genesis 10 that good news is presented is that humanity is progressing along the pathway that God had intended. We are told that it, and we are told that uh, 70 names you will find if you count it carefully. There are 70 names in the table of nations. In biblical thought, you remember at the beginning we talked about numbers. 70 is highly symbolic and highly significant. It is the product of two full numbers, 7 and 10, making a number that connoted extreme fullness. Now it is clear that the author is not giving us a comprehensive list of all the people in existence. He limits himself to the peoples that lived within the Bible world, the area around the land of Israel. He also does not attempt to name every person in particular, uh, uh, in, a, in a particular genealogy. He only tells us what is necessary. So by the fact that he names 70 descendants of Noah, he's affirming that God's purpose for a flourishing humanity governing the world of creation has become a reality once again. But having looked at that wonderful, brilliant good news, we are forced to look at what the author presents as the bad news. In the way that the text is arranged, we are given two false stories on either side of the good news, the positive record of the table of nations. So if you look back at chapter 9, verse 18 to 28, you will see the the sinful violations by individuals. And on the other side of chapter 10, verse, chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, we see the sinful resistance in society. So if you will turn your eyes to that story about Noah after the flood, verse 18 to 28. The first story focuses on two individuals. We have barely got off the ark. We have barely... Uh, got away from the echoes of God's amazing blessing and promise of covenant. And we are still hearing the echoes of that. Chapter 9, verse 1 to 17. When we read these words in verse 20 and 21. Noah, man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. This last picture of Noah seems to contrast so much with the picture we had of him throughout the previous chapters. Remember, the scriptures had given him the highest accolades for his conduct. In chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Then how do we see him naked and drunk and fallen inside his tent? Now he is blessed to plant a vineyard. He's blessed to obtain a crop. But instead of governing God's creation as God's dignified representative, he consumes excessively from it, becomes drunk, and is fallen naked and undignified. He has abused the gifts of creation. You know, in his book, Sex, Food, and God, David Ekman begins with this striking one-liner. Everything involved in addiction is good. Let me say that again. Everything involved in addiction is good. What is he saying when he says everything involved in addiction is good? He's saying that food, alcohol, chemicals, sex, these are all God's good gifts to us. They are meant to bless humanity with pleasure and productivity. 
But it is those very gifts that we abuse and so lose our freedom and dignity by that abuse. But the greater focus of this story is not on Noah, but on Noah's son Ham. Now he does something awful and so despicable that Noah would pronounce a severe curse in chapter 9 verse 24 to 27. But the question is, what did Ham do? Notice the curse in verse 24 to 27. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will, be, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's uh, territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. What did Ham do? It was obviously really terrible. So awful that a very explicit and severe curse is uttered by Noah. What the text seems to say, uh, what the text says seems to be quite simple. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. So on the face of it, it seems that Ham stumbled into the tent saw his father in an undignified state, and instead of covering his father, he went and blabbed about it to his brothers. And so the question is, is this what all the fuss is about? Biblical scholars, of course, throughout the centuries, both Jewish and Christian, are in agreement that things are not as simple as that. Like us, they ask several questions. What was the nature of Ham's indecent act? Why is it that his son Canaan is cursed? Why has Canaan to become a slave to his brothers? Now almost everyone agrees that Ham's sin was sexual in nature. But what exactly were the sins? There are three possibilities. One is the possibility that this was a sin of voyeurism. It is to suggest that Ham found some perverse pleasure in seeing his father's nakedness and announcing it to his brothers. The second has been a suggestion that this is the sin of homosexual rape. This was the preferred interpretation of the ancient rabbis. But a third possibility has now been discussed more and more. And this is the possibility that this was the sin of maternal incest. And this interpretation comes from a verse in Leviticus 18 and verse 7, which helps us understand the phrase, the, the nakedness of your father, as a euphemism for, the, for, the, for, the, for incest with one's mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Now, an increasing number of scholars are inclined to see this as the possible reason for the severe judgment that comes on Ham. One of them is a friend of mine, Steve uh, Steve Bryan, who writes a book called Cultural Identity and the Purposes of God, in which he writes, the narrator regards the event as so unspeakable that he refuses to speak it, choosing instead to use a known euphemism for maternal incest. A few other factors might support this interpretation, although, although it is not to be taken dogmatically. On two occasions in the story, when the author mentions Ham, he adds, the father of Canaan, in verse 18 and verse 22. Now in chapter 10, we learn that Ham actually had four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. 
Perhaps this story is trying to tell us how Canaan became Ham's son. When Noah wakes up and realizes what Ham has done, he pronounces a severe curse, suggesting that whatever Ham did, it was beyond all norms and despicably wicked. But interestingly, he doesn't curse Ham. The curse is on Canaan. Is this because Canaan was the product of Ham's incestuous act? In Genesis 19, of course, in verse 30 to 38, we have another story that has similar undertones. It is the story of Lot and his two daughters. The daughters got him drunk and committed incest with him. And out of that incestuous relationship was birthed two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. In any case, if Noah abused the gifts of creation to undermine God's will, we may say that Ham abused the gift of his createdness as a sexual being to violate God's will for human behavior. So that's the first false story. It's the story of individuals who have violated and hurt God. But on the other side, in chapter 11, verse 9, we have society abusing the gifts of culture and communication to resist God's will. As you know, the second story is a very well-known story. Again, another favorite in Sunday school, the story of the Tower of Babel, just like the story of Noah and the flood. But this one takes only nine verses. But what is it trying to say? If the first story showed sinful resistance by individuals, the Babel story is about sinful resistance by society. It speaks of a time when culture and communication was at its optimal They spoke a shared language, and they had developed unprecedented technology. Notice verse 3. Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. This innovation of brick making and the use of a substance as mortar was as revolutionizing in the ancient world as digital technology is to us. But you see, it is not technological advancement that creates the problem. It is the availability of advanced technology in the hands of societies that are determined to rebel against God that poses a threat. So see what they say next in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. I want you to see two pictures. One is a picture of the Pope. And this is, both these pictures are generated by by AI. They are both deep fakes. But for the first time viewer, they could could, uh, appear quite authentic. AI is now with us. You know, these folk in the Tower of Babel, they first discussed developing new technologies. And what a wonderful thing it was, that they had the capacity to develop such radically new technologies. But then they discussed how they could utilize that very technology to challenge the purposes of God, which was the tragic thing. In Genesis 3, the human pair had been given an offer to become like God. Here, the builders of the city were also trying to domesticate and replace God. Notice their language. Come, let us 
build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. They have even begun to sound like God because this is only the second time in Genesis that you hear second or third time you hear this language, come, let us. You remember the first time? Who was speaking that? God in chapter 1. Let us make mankind in our own image after our likeness. And now the human society of Shina are speaking like God, using that same kind of language. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Come, let us build for ourselves a tower. Were they trying to make God in their own image? All through Genesis, we are confronted by the divine mandate. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This was God's plan that humanity will spread and fill the earth as diverse peoples managing his beautiful creation. But what do we hear at Babel? They rebel against the very commission and say, we don't want to be scattered to fill the earth. Outright rebellion. So how does God respond? We are told that he makes an inspection visit and it's a little bit of humor on the part of the author. He says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower they were building. They thought that their tower was something so grand that it was reaching to the heavens, but for, for the Lord, he had to come down to have a look at it. It is also ironic that here are people arrogantly claiming that they can build a tower that can reach to the heavens. But at the same time, God acknowledges the hum, huge potential that humans have in verse 6. If as one people... Speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. With artificial intelligence, has humanity come full circle from Babel? And God in his response undermines the very gift of communication that had fostered such advancement. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. How tragic, how sad that God's intervention to help humanity limit itself was to limit our ability to communicate with one another. So if the story of Ham told about human perversity, the story of Babel speaks about human arrogance. Today we see this same perversity and arrogance characterize people and society. We exploit our freedom and violate God-given limits in our interpersonal relationships, and we try to replace God in our life as societies, and every time with disastrous consequences. With the development of AI following the digital revolution, it appears that we have reached another such moment when humanity is at the brink. Our own innovativeness has created the means to utterly destroy society. We read that over 1,000 experts, including Elon Musk, one of the founders of OpenAI, wrote a letter to the U.S. government not long ago requesting a suspension on ongoing development of AI for six months because they asked in that letter, should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us? What a moment we have reached in the history of humanity. But then the good news again. How the purposes of God forge ahead in a rebellious world. 
With the Babel story, we see again how God takes charge of his world. And that is something very hopeful for us, even as sometimes we feel like everything is slipping away. You know, things fall apart, said one poet. The center cannot hold. But when we feel like that, to remember that God does intervene. God is always on the throne. He is in charge of our world. We are not, and we can depend on him. Humanity has great potential and is given immense freedom. But when sin rears its ugly head to resist God's will for the world, God steps in and changes the course of history. So Genesis 1 to 11 ends not on the hopeless note of Babel and its confusion, but on the hopeful note that God is making a fresh start. He is going to use the lineage of Shem to begin writing and rewriting the history of the world. So two notes of hope from the genealogy of Shem. You notice chapter 11 verse 10 to 26 tells us about Shem's genealogy. And it is stated very like the genealogy in chapter 5, verse 1 to 32. If you ever get a chance uh, uh, soon to just compare those, you will find that it has a very similar ring, a very similar pattern or rhythm. But there is one noticeable difference. In the chapter 5 genealogy, which talks about people like Methuselah and Lamech and so on, it always ends with these words, and he died. But if you look at this genealogy, that phrase is omitted. Now we know that everyone in Shem's line died, but the author drops that morbid note. He prefers to end each entry with these words, and had other sons and daughters. Do you get a positive feel? At the end of each uh, entry, he just talks about more sons and daughters. This is a genealogy that is breathing out life itself and flourishing. So that the genealogy connotes a flourishing human family along the lines that God had proposed from the beginning. And where does that, this lineage climax? It leads to Terah and tells us that at the optimal age of 70, Terah became the father of Abraham. In verse 26 of chapter 11. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran. The second note of hope in this genealogy is that it climaxes in the call of Abraham. So we are told to see Abraham as another Noah, one through whom humanity will have hope of a new beginning. Lamech had prophesied about Noah. He will comfort us in, our labor and in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. But in the case of Abraham... It is not Terah who prophesies about Abraham, but God himself using a sevenfold blessing in chapter 12 and verse 2 to 3. It climaxes with these words that become the hope of the whole world, including you and I and all the generations that will follow us. So I'm going to ask you to read this blessing, uh, this uh, promise of God with me and notice the sevenfold blessing as God uh, read, uh, promises it to Abraham. Will you read aloud with me? I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is how God ends the story of Genesis 1 to 11. 
It's a story, it's a note of the greatest hope because it is God's plan that will continue in spite of human resistance. And as we think of Genesis 1 to 11, we recognize that God's purpose for humanity and his plans for a new beginning that will lead to the story of Jesus, his son, his incarnation, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, his glorious ascension, and his climactic return to establish the new heavens and the new earth that constitutes the remainder of the revelation of scripture. Sometimes people read the Bible as a book of literature, and I know they do it in university, but the Bible wasn't written to be a book of literature. Some read it as if it's a book of science, and it will explain everything about the natural world, but the Bible wasn't written as a book of science. Others read the book of the Bible as a book of history so that we can learn all kinds of things about the ancient past. But the Bible wasn't written as a book of history. There is one golden thread that runs from one cover to the other end of the Bible. And that golden thread is salvation. It's God's plan to save. It runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And through, as it runs through, it picks up speed and brings us to Jesus, the great Savior. The golden thread of salvation is the singular theme that holds together the inspired word of God. When the apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, he was not aware that one day, one day his book will become the last book of the Christian scriptures. But not only did, he, did it become the final word, but as if to confirm the integrity of the biblical story, the Holy Spirit has so arranged that Genesis 1 to 11 and the book of Revelation would correspond more explicitly. So let's look at some of those explicit correspondences as we come to a close. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 21 verse 1, we read about how God has now created a new heavens and a new earth. In Genesis 3, paradise was lost. In, Genesis, in Revelation 22, paradise is regained. In Genesis 3, humanity was banished from having access to the tree of life. But if you look at Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, a new humanity discovers abundant supplies of the tree of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. In Genesis the human story begins with a wedding that God arranges for the first Adam and provides him Eve as his bride. But when we come to Revelation 22, the human story has climaxed in 21 and 22 with the wedding that God arranges for his son. And he has now brought him a bride that is ready for the marriage. The second Adam receives his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you.